0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading, short and deep, Powers of the Air by J.D. Beresford. This was first published in a magazine called The Seven Arts, uh, October 1917. This magazine uh, is very artsy. <laughs> Has... um. Uh, In the same issue, there's an article by Bertrand Russell. Um, I recognize a couple of the other names, not that I'm super familiar with the other names, but Bertrand Russell I'm very familiar with, and J.D. Beresford I've read a novel by, and uh, I'm aware of his his love and respect for H.G. Wells and uh, other authors who were about and doing things um, he was a friend of Catherine Mansfield, who we've done a, a podcast on a story of hers. And uh, this whole era is, was sort of unknown to me uh, until I started uh, working on my website and podcasts and that sort of thing. But um, I'm coming to appreciate it. I used to think anything after 1899 was uninteresting up until the 1950s. But uh, I, I think I'm probably wrong about that. <laughs> um, so, uh, the uh, just pre-World War I era is very interesting. The World War I era is interesting. The 1920s, incredibly interesting now. The 1930s are amazingly interesting. 1940s, a little less interesting, but I'm probably wrong about that, too. Um, is this the first J.D. Beresford
1: story you've ever read? It is the first one that I re- that I remember, but since the name is so well known to me, I have a feeling that I've read some of his stuff in the past. Mm-hmm. It just didn't impress me enough.
0: This is, uh, speaking of impressing, uh,
1: this was. Which is, which is not to say that this is not a well written story. It is. I mean, you know, when I was young and foolish, maybe I read something and didn't attend to it as I should have.
0: There, There's a collection that this is probably best known uh, by most people. Uh, called 19 Impressions that includes 19 stories uh, by J.D. Beresford um, running a gamut of uh, emotions and um, ideas um, and this is a person, J.D. Beresford very sensitive to emotions and to ideas um, and uh, this one I find incredibly interesting and I also don't really understand exactly what's going on so I'm hoping you can help me with that <laughs> um, uh, but I will point out um, that there is a default classification other than being an impression, which really doesn't tell you much about it, um, which is, seems to be a ghost or strange story. It's been collected outside of Beresford's own collection uh, in books called "Horror H- Homefront Horrors, Frights Away from the Front Lines, 1914 to 1918. Um, that's uh, the most recent uh, paper book and then a uh, hundred twisted little tales of torment i I can see that. Um, but then the rest of the collections are ghost ghost collections, ghost stories, ghost book, uh, mammoth book of go- uh, ghosts, thrillers and mysteries. I guess there could be a mystery classification here, but um i I was sold on it by the idea it was a ghost story and I think you'd have to sort of stress the definition quite a bit. So I'm hoping you can help me <laughs> uh, identify some of the ghosts that are in here, if they are indeed ghosts.
1: Hmm. Yeah. When Jesus tells a parable, is the content is the explicit content of the parable? Even part of the story?
0: I'm thinking of um, uh, the writing on the wall for some reason. I think there actually is a line in here. Uh, that's not. Is, is that. No, that's not Jesus. Uh, there's another story. Well, he's writing on the floor,
1: right? Yeah. Uh, no, the, the handwriting on the wall is Mene Mene Te You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Right. Um, and. In that uh, that sentence, um, it, it, there is no literal weighing going on, and, and what we mean when we speak metaphorically or parabolically um, may it, it's flavored by the vehicle by which the tenor is carried across. The tenor being the meaning. If I say of you, Jesse, that you are an Einstein. Um, That means, you know, the tenor is you're very smart and imaginative. If I say to you, uh, say of you that you are a Newton, that also means you're very smart and very imaginative. But there's a slightly different flavor if I call you an Einstein, which makes you a modern man on which modern theories are based, as opposed to a Newton, which is a a, a neoclassic man um, on whom um, the solid traditions of modern science are based so you know in both cases you're a genius in both cases you're imaginative there's slightly different flavors the tenor is the same the the vehicle is different but when i say that of you either one of those i am not saying that your last name is either einstein or newton right the, the, the important part the, is
0: I'm I, I'm a genius. That's the important part.
1: <laughs> that and I want to make you know, and that's clear to all of our listeners. I understand that, so I am not expecting any argument on that. What I am saying is that when you say to me that you'd like me to help you identify the ghosts in this story, mm. I'm not sure that there are any ghosts in yeah. this story. I read it as a parable, and yeah, uh, I think that, the that's question a good for me is understanding. Why the particular vehicle is chosen for this particular parable? Mm-hmm. But uh, explicitly, what's going on in the story is that there is somebody named um, I. That's the first word. I foresaw the, saw the danger that threatened him, and it's an I and a him throughout the whole story. I speaks, and he speaks about what he is trying to do, which is to get him to recognize that there are dangers in nature that there are dangers that he will encounter that when darkness comes there will be things that um, are threatening and that uh, in specific uh, the the setting seems to be uh, near a cliffside overlooking the sea and the most dangerous place would be on the clifftop when the winds are raging in the darkness, in the blackness, and the nights are getting longer and longer. Now, uh, and so I, it keeps getting, telling he, him, there are these terrible things out there that can get you in the dark. Don't go out in the dark, in the full dark, and certainly don't go to the most dangerous place in the dark, which is the top of the cliff. Mm-hmm. And, and the younger person, we're told that he is younger. That's all we know about their relationship, um, explicitly. Um, he says, no, 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 that's a superstition. I keep saying, you're, you've got book learning. You, you've been city, you're, you're a city fella, you know, and you people who have not been exposed to actual nature, you are in your minds blind and don't see these things and don't see those dangers that are out there. Um, and at a certain point, he, who seems to be staying in the same residence as I, says, listen, I'm going to prove to you. Since so you don't have any proof that there are these terrible things out there, these powers of the air uh, zapping around and and creating danger for people, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to go out in the dark. And the, uh, I says, don't do that. You know, it's going to be terrible. Uh, but he goes. He goes. And I wait, and uh, sure enough, it's dark and dark and dark, and he doesn't come back. And because of his concern, because of I's concern for he, he resolves, in fact, in the dark with the, the gale raging around their residence, which one feels – it feels to me like uh, a wooden cottage somewhere near uh, on, on the uh, – the lee side of the cliff. Um, He opens the door to go out, but in fact, there is he coming back in and they talk. And uh, so he survived. And then we get to the ending, which is crucial in my reading of it. But basically, uh, and I'd like to discuss that when we get to interpretation, Mm -hmm. uh, but what he says is, yes, yes, I I was out there and uh, I says, well, I went out there too. I went out to to the cliff and you weren't there. And he says, you went out to the cliff. And I says, well, I went out to the cliff and he says, but did you go to the top? And I says, no. And then, um, in fact, he says, that's probably why you didn't see what was going on. But I says, uh, Braced by his struggle with the wind, the young eyes were glowing with this consciousness of discovery and new knowledge. Yet he cannot deny that I showed him the way. So suddenly at the end, um, the knowledge that he gained by doing what I had tried to stop him from doing is something that I seems to want to take some credit for. Does that sound like what's going on in the story? Yeah,
0: yeah, and it definitely has some parabolic (laughs) storytelling going on. And uh, I I, I was baffled by it at first, and and I I, I didn't even finish the first page. I'm definitely going to have to send this to Eric (laughs) (laughs) because I need some help. I need to study this, and that's my excuse to, uh, to get to understand what's going on in this story. Um, I, I'll get Eric to help me, but, um, I'll tell you how baffled I was at first. There, there's a lot of metaphor going on, beautiful similes, uh, on the first page. Um, I, I want to read some more of what you, you started to read there at the beginning, but, um, I, I, I was so confused at first that I thought the, that the, the he and him was a bird. <laughs> because there's a lot of bird metaphors going on including um you know he was penned up he was uh, he was caged um and and, the, and and saying you know that um book learning is not useful for birds basically <laughs> but it's what I was thinking because there's a lot going on and and then the title which was very familiar to me but I couldn't sort of put my finger on it turns out I think it's a reference to uh, uh, an allusion in the Bible to uh, the devil uh, or at least the forces of evil um, hmm. and uh, so I, I just want to read the first couple of paragraphs because there's some really interesting stuff going on in the language. It's it, it's more of a prose poem than it is a straight-up story. Um, and I think that I'll just be coming out with our description. And then there's a, a, another line later on the same pa- first page. Let me just read the first couple paragraphs here. I foresaw the danger that threatened him. He was so ignorant and his sight had been almost destroyed in the city streets. A trustful ignorance is the beginning of wisdom, but these townspeople are conceited with their foolish book learning, and reading darkens the eyes of the mind. I was... I At that point in the story, I'm like, it does? I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in deep trouble. Um, but then I thought, okay, well, maybe this is a, uh, some sort of metaphor for um, not being in nature. And I think that that's definitely going on there. But uh, let me read the second paragraph. I began to warn him in early October, when the gales roar far up in the sky... They are harmless then. They tear at the ricks and the slate roofs and waste themselves in stripping the trees. But we are safe until the darkness comes. And that darkness is the second time we've got dark at the end of a, uh, of, of a paragraph. Uh, reading darkens the eyes. We've got darkness coming. Uh, I was thinking, is this winter? Or is this nighttime? Um, but I think it might be emotional darkness as well. Um, and then he starts talking about rooks in the third paragraph. I took him to the crown of the stubble land and turned him with his back to the dark thread of the sea. I pointed to the rooks, tumbling about the sky like scattered leaves that sported in the mounting wind. This is also the third time that we've got a reference to the time of year, and obviously place is very important here. Um, I've later learned that um, this is probably... Uh, based on a real sort of incident, which is really interesting, uh, but I don't think it's wholly based on that incident. Um, you, you know who D.H. D. Lawrence was, right? Uh, yes. Uh, apparently they were friends, um, Beresford and Lawrence, and at one point, uh, during the war, um, I think it was 1917, um, uh, or actually late uh, 1916, uh, uh, Lawrence was on, uh, visiting Beresford's cottage in, um, Cornwall. Um, and there's some s- striking pictures of the place. Uh, hard to pronounce it, but, um, it's a, a small village in Cornwall. But uh, it has these striking seascapes and cliff tops, and we've got this sense of you know the stubble land, and the, the that's the um, the the harvest has been brought in, and they're turn they're plowing the fields for the winter, um, and then this final line in this pair in the first page, just well, it's not the final line. It's the final line when I said, oh, I got to send this to Eric because it's so interesting. This is the last full paragraph on the first page. I was silent for a moment. I stared down at the texture of the black fields plowed for winter wheat and thought of all the writing that lay before us under that wild October hill. All the clear signs that he could never be taught to read. And I thought, what the hell does this mean? Um, And so I I was at that point where I, I sent it to you without even having finished it. Yeah, um, because it it was clear to me that something was going deep was going on here, and that we needed to read it. Hence, uh, reading short and
1: deep. Okay, would you like a shot at it? Please, please. Um, I think I actually understand this story well enough to get me to the point of comfort that allows me to then look at what the implications are of the particular vehicles that were chosen. In this parable, that line you just quoted, um, I stared down at the texture of the black uh, fields plowed for winter wheat and thought of all the writing that lay before us under that wild October Hill. All the clear signs that he could never be taught to read that last phrase, all the clear signs that he could never be taught to read has at least two syntactically correct readings. One is. These are clear signs that this person will never be able to be taught to read. Right. The other is these are the signs that he will never be able to be taught to read. <laughs> right. No, it's, he won't be able to read these signs as opposed to these are signs that he will never be able to read. Mm-hmm. And I think, in fact, it is these are the signs These are signs that he will never be able to be taught to to read because he has been changed. Let me suggest a reading. Why is I, let's call it the older man, why is I so concerned to educate and protect? Uh, He's desperate uh, to convince the younger man. Hypothesis, it's his son. Mm. I foresaw the danger that threatened him. He was so ignorant and his sight had been almost destroyed in the city streets. These are rural folk. And he, the older man, has sent his son for an education in the city.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And by that trustful ignorance, which is the beginning of wisdom, these town people are conceited with their foolish book learning. Conceited as uh, etymologically cognate with the word concept. And reading darkens the eyes of the mind. That is, you see things through your words, your text, rather than seeing them directly by looking in the world. But sometimes the world gets dark, it gets black, and then it's hard to see in either case. So in that passage you just read, stare down at the text, sure, of black fields plowed for winter wheat. What we have is a rural equivalent of texts. And our speaker, the older man, can see the meaning in these texts. Mm-hmm. Younger man cannot. Mm-hmm. Now, the bird imagery is quite lovely. It um, is. We have a parable here. Um, I had known... Only fear, only in the fear of the soul. Have you ever seen the wind, I said? He's trying to explain to his son, if you will, mm-hmm. how he can know something that has, for which there's no direct evidence. Have you ever seen the wind, I said? He laughed. Well, then, tell me your evidence, he replied. I searched my mind for something that he might regard, again, seeing, as evidence. Men, I said, used to believe that the little birds, the finches and the tits, rushed blindly at the lanterns of the lighthouses, were by the seaside, of course, and dashed themselves to death as a moth will dash itself into the candle. But now they know that the birds only seek a refuge near the light and that they will rest till dawn on the perches that are built for them. Is men have a way of accommodating these birds, so that they're no longer dying on uh, the, the lenses of lighthouses. Quite true, he agreed. And what then? The little birds are prey to the powers of the air. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the title of the story. When the darkness comes, I said, and their only chance of life is to come within the beam of the protecting light. And when they could find no place to rest. They hovered and fluttered until they were weak with the ache of flight and fell a little into the darkness. Then in panic and despair, they fled back and overshot their mark. But gulls, he began, a few, I interrupted him. A few, although they also belong to the wild and the darkness. They fall in chasing the little birds who, like us, are a quarry. The younger man says, a pretty fable. Mm. Now, When the older man at first tells us what is coming up, he talks about the leaves like rooks. He talks about the the rooks flying around in the air Mm -hmm. like fall fall leaves and this is October and so on and the nights are getting longer. So rooks are black. Mm Mm-hmm seagulls are gray they are both black and white they are also of the sea they are also wild but these others the finches and the tits they're bright colored they are not black so we are like them we are not creatures of the night he explains this to the son to his son i say his son and he says you're so young just wait and the fellow taunts him and says i'm going to go out and i'm going to prove this to you Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact um shelter is crucial uh, when our fellow our older fellow goes out trying to find and help the younger one who's gone out he says i crept back to the road and the shelter of the cutting and then i fled to my house a cutting is a british word for the uh, the place that is the trench that's cut in a hillside to make make it possible to have a, a road going in, mm-hmm. going through. Right, so man can create shelters. The home is where they can live. The lighthouse is a place for human beings. But birds have to be accommodated in certain ways. So he finally says, him, finds him. The older man finds the younger one. They get together. And I knew that no effort of mine could have saved him. No effort of mine could have saved him. And yet... At that moment, when he recognizes that, the outer door banged, and I heard his footstep. Where have you been, I asked. I went out to the cliff to find you and thought you were dead. I mean, amazing. Considering what this older man thinks about being out in the night, that he would do this for the younger man represents an incredibly powerful relationship. Mm -hmm. Hence, you know, the hypothesis about father and son. You came to the cliffs, he said. To the foot of the cliff, I confessed. Ah, you must never go further than that in the black time, he said. Then you believe me now, I asked. He smiled. I believe that you would be in danger up there tonight, he said, because you believe in the powers of the air and you are afraid. So the younger man has a knowledge that credits the significance of how one looks at the world, not just how the world is. He stood in the doorway, the younger man, braced by his struggle with the wind, and his young eyes were glowing with the consciousness of discovery and of new knowledge. Yet he cannot deny that I showed him the way. So, I view this as a parable of a father who has sent his son to the city, By being citified and starting to look at things through the lens of text, the textured fields, through the lens of text, he has become progressively blind to the the unworded realities of nature by seeking to convince his son and by the son accepting this not as a challenge to himself, but as a challenge to his father. He goes out to try to disprove what his father has said. Instead, he comes back acknowledging that for his father, this is a reality. He has, in fact, transcended the notion of simple argument to recognize that there are things that are not worded in this world. And yet he hasn't lost his book learning in this way. The, the exchange between father and son has led the son to a more complete knowledge than the father had. And as is the case of, in, in, with many devoted parents, instead of feeling triumphant um, or despondent, he feels glad because he cannot deny that I showed him the way the son has now transcended the knowledge of the father. He is able to go up on the cliffside, even in the dark, although the father is not. This is, I think, an extraordinary, humble, caring relationship between father and son. So I go back and look at the the vehicle for this parable. And I see not only nature, but I see those birds that you talked about. And I think about the lighthouse. And there it is of men trying to create something to keep others from dashing themselves against the uh, the cliffs, from in fact dying in the dark, mm. can do that for each other, and. If you are one kind of bird, you need it, and men may have to help you a little more to give you a perch. Mm. Father has for the son. If you're another kind of bird, you can be between two worlds. And if you're some kind of bird, like the rooks, you're just part of the blackness, and you're not us at all. You are like the leaves that fall in autumn, because things always get darker. Mm. And then they get lighter again, and then they get darker again. And that is the passage of time and the movement from one generation to the next.
0: I, I, I think you've nailed a whole lot of good stuff in there. And I do like your reading of it as a father and a son, because I, I didn't see that. But I I definitely see how that could totally be, especially in their relationship, uh, that they're spending time together, that they that they don't know each other as well as they could. Um, but that they have an int- intimacy that is, um, it- it's very interesting. Why does he need to tell him all this stuff unless, you know, he's going to inherit this and he's going to need to be around here? He's going to have to deal with this. Um, uh, and I also like the fact that it turns out that I was right all along, that he was a bird. <laughs> 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 um, I want to point you to the, the backup um, that is just a beautiful metaphor. It's at the bottom of the first page. Knowledge, I said, he, as, a, as opposed to the son was saying uh, superstition. Knowledge, I said. I was afraid for him and I wished to save him. He had been penned in that little world of the town like a caged gull. So penned can both be in writing, right? That he has actual literacy and he can read and write, um, but he can't. He can't. Um, he can't understand the the world of nature, especially because he's been penned up. So that so that double meaning there is great. And then when when the I think the as you're pointing out the father, um, who I see as illiterate. Um, at least in the, in words and books, um, has this description of book folk. I think he's, he's really pointing to something. It's so wonderful that J.D. Beresford uses the power of, of texts and, 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 you know, books to disparage book learning. (laughs) Listen to this. This is on the second page. That is the manner of these book folk. They always ask for names. If they can but label a thing in a word or in a volume of description, they are satisfied that they have achieved knowledge. They bandy these names of theirs as a talisman. And a a talisman is, you know, an object of protection and safety and power. And they think they understand because they're protected by these, you know, it, 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 if you know what a subjural hematoma is, you just break down the word into the different parts, sub meaning under, and hema meaning blood, and uh, jura is, a, you know, layer between the brain. Like, it, then you, it doesn't seem so scary. And, and then you think you have power over it, which you kind of do, but you also don't understand everything just because you have the words for it. You know, uh, differential on a car doesn't mean you know how to take it apart and put it back together. You don't need just the words, you need the experience. And that is really interesting, especially in this this particular story. I I, I want to point out that the story is written uh, or published in October, October 1917, volume of uh, The Seven Arts. Um, and then I mentioned Bertrand Russell, who's on that first uh, table of contents page. And Bertrand Russell, I know all about because in university I had to study something that he invented that nobody uses uh, called natural deductive logic, which is basically symbolic logic, where you try to understand the world, uh, especially statements about the world, like uh, the sky is blue, uh, by translating it into symbols and doing uh, algebra with it. And th- this was incredibly hard for me. Uh, because I'm not a natural math student. And I I, I was delighted to learn that later on, uh, when the Logical Positivists, which was a movement uh, that sort of began with Bertrand Russell, um, (laughs) eventually it turns out they were all wrong. (laughs) Because they were trying to understand, they they were trying to understand why sometimes people would get all curled up in their ideas and just go crazy with uh, philosophy Uh, And their solution was, we just have to make it like algebra, like math, where everything works out. And this is exactly what uh, Beresford is saying. He's saying um, that we can get all screwed up by thinking we understand. I'm just going to continue that read here. I had, uh, he says, um, these book folk, they always ask for names. They bandy these names of theirs as a talisman. Who knows, I replied. We haven't learned their power. Call them what, what you will. You cannot change them by any baptism. The, uh, really interesting metaphor there. And then just down a bit. I had, but how could I describe them to him? Can one explain the colors of autumn to a man born blind? Or is there any language which will set out the play of a breaker among the rocks? And uh, the answer is physics, but that doesn't actually give you... The feeling. It just gives you the dynamics, right? How then can I talk to him of that which I have known only in the fear of my soul? And I think there's a whole other layer that we have not touched on, um, which I think is po- entirely possible to read the story that way. It's that the father is haunted by a depression that the son doesn't have. That going out on that, that hill in the dark time would be fatal for him because he has dark thoughts whereas uh, the sun if you're reading it, uh, as, it is, as I guess we can um, isn't beset by those problems he doesn't have that dark time
1: I, I think that is right I, I'd like to, to suggest a couple of things here one that that dark time may have been if we need to be specific and we do not because it's parabolic it could be for example that the mother died in childbirth mm. And that's why the father had to ultimately send the son to the city for education, because he couldn't do enough all by himself, um, having to keep body and soul together. Uh, So I can easily imagine that, that going out on that cliff and thinking about a mother who... I don't know. Committed suicide. Or whatever. It's it, it's it's dangerous. And water is a symbol for life, and and yet too much of it, and its dissolution of the soul. So there goes the mom. You talked about the soul, and you hi- you mentioned soul, and you highlighted the word baptism. There is another way of looking at layer of this as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. which has to do with standard religion. Now I'm going to suggest something that's I don't put a lot of faith in, but I as it were, but I put some. It's called Powers of the Air. It's not the Powers of the Air, it's Powers of the Air. Mm -hmm. Interesting phrase, not the Powers of the Air, Powers of the Air. There is a phrase, it rings in my mind, the Eve of Powers, which is used in an 1843 um, story by Hawthorne called The Birthmark a very, very important story, a very well-known story. And the Eve of Powers is a statue made by a fellow named Hiram Powers of Eve. It was so astonishing and wonderful, a statue, that for years it was taken from city to city in the United States and exhibited. You could pay your penny or nickel to go see the Eve of Powers. Now, of course, In the birthmark, Eve represents what should have been perfect, but ultimately is not. She has sin and moves toward death. Eve does. And the the gorgeous woman in the birthmark, her artist husband, tries to expunge the birthmark from her to make her perfect, as perfect as the Eve of Powers. And like the Eve of Powers, she becomes cold as well. She dies sympathetically at the at the effort of her artist husband. If we look at powers of the air as another example of how it is that Eve always leads us so far until the next coming into the world of sin, then that use of the term soul and the expression that baptism will not do the trick tells us that the father recognizes that there will not be any ultimate saving of his son in this world, because darkness will come, days will get longer, time will go on, even if we believe in the religious sense of the world. Now you may think that it's all wrong, but I think it's an example of the fact that there's always more to say.
0: And remember. You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.